You are listening to List It, my show where me and a guest rank and list things in pop culture. And I'm very excited about my guest today, very excited about the topic. And uh, I, I'm going to read the bio for my guest today. And it honestly sounds like I'm combining like bios of six different highly accomplished people. You probably know her, Dr. Maya Shunker, as a cognitive scientist who hosts the new amazing po- podcast on Pushkin called A Slight Change of Plans. It's an incredible show. She's had guests like Tiffany Haddish, Hillary Clinton, Casey Musgraves, and a lot of other really fascinating people who talk about going through profound changes in their lives. And it's not only a great storytelling uh, podcast, but there's also so many interesting things about cognitive science in the show. And there's a reason why she is so not knowledgeable about the topic. She has a postdoctoral fellowship in cognitive neuroscience at Stanford, a PhD from Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship, and a degree from Yale. She served as a senior advisor in the Obama White House, where she founded and served as the chair of the White House Behavioral Science Team. She currently serves as a senior director of behavioral economics at Google, and she served as the first behavioral science advisor to the United Nations under Ban Ki-moon. Dr. Maya Shunker, welcome to List It. What an impressive resume. Thank you so much. I'm going to be very underwhelming like, <laughs> no, no, to your listeners. Not at all. Well, I'm really excited to have you on. Like I said, I'm a big fan of the podcast. And today we're going to be talking about uh, movies that represent navigating change. And I'm really excited to hear your picks. But before we get into the list, I, I you do you have an incredible resume. And it's all kind of centered around the idea of cognitive science, trying to understand how, why the brain operates the way we do. Why did you want to get into this field? Why is it something that is such a passion for you? Yeah, it was pretty unexpected, Jesse, because um, from the time I was six, playing the violin was actually my life. So my, when I was six years old, my mom went up to her attic and brought down my grandmother's violin. She had brought it with her all the way from India when she immigrated to this country in the seventies. And when she brought it down. She had just thought she was going to show it to me like, oh, this is this cool thing that your grandmother played. But I I picked up the instrument and I really took to it. Um, and I very quickly asked my mom to get me a pint-sized version <laughs> for myself. Yeah. And that began um, a decade-long experience of playing the violin uh, really intensely. So when I was nine, um, I applied and was very fortunately accepted at the Juilliard School of Music in New York. So I started going every Saturday for 10 hours of classes wow. with my mom. Um, and then when I was in high school, um, Itzhak Perlman invited me to be his private violin student. And wow. Perlman was, I mean, is my favorite violinist of all time. Yeah. Um, but I felt like he gave me that vote of confidence that maybe I had what it took to become a professional. Um, as you can imagine, when you're in a highly competitive environment like Juilliard, um, you don't always think you, you, you're you made of the right stuff. And so that vote of confidence really accelerated my violin career and made me think that I had a chance of making this my profession. Yeah. And then tragically, when I was 15, I had a sudden hand injury. I tore tendons in my hand and oh, no. was told by doctors that I could never play again. And I remember feeling very devastated and despondent um, as a result of this change in my life, this unexpected change. And it led me as a 15-year-old to, for the first time ever, really ask these big existential questions about myself, like what it really meant to be me, what I was without the without mm. the violin, right? It had played such a formative role in my life up until that point, and I really felt it defined me as a person. And so... Um, you know, there's this interesting insight in cognitive science called identity foreclosure. And it basically refers to the fact that 
as adolescents, and this can carry through into adulthood, we can become very fixed in our sense of self, in our identity, and it could lead us to be closed off and not explore all these other avenues that we might otherwise have explored in life. Yeah. And so in losing the violin, I think it served me in a lot of ways because it allowed me to see my identity as far more malleable than I otherwise might have mm. and allowed me to try to be more open-minded about all those spaces that I could occupy. Yeah. And so to your question about how I got into the science of the mind, um, the summer before college, I was helping my parents clean their basement. I was supposed to be in China touring with my violin classmates. Mm. Um, so, you know, equally cool summer. Um, <laughs> and I stumbled upon a book about the science of language learning. Mm. And up until that point, I had totally taken for granted my ability to speak and comprehend language. It was something that I hadn't fully appreciated. And I read this book and realized that it was the result of incredibly complex cognitive machinery architecture that's going on behind the scenes all the time. And I just felt completely in awe of the mind in that moment. You know, when yeah. you see the curtain pulled back and you realize that something like language is a result of this really sophisticated, you know, background machinery, um, then you start thinking about other questions about the mind, like how it is we make really high level decisions, um, what the process is behind things like falling in love or developing our attitudes and beliefs about the world. Um, my mind just lit up and I became so intrigued by this idea of spending as much time as I could trying to figure out other parts of the mind um, and how it is that we navigate through this world. So it, that it's such a fascinating thing to think because it, and it's relatively, I feel like, recent in kind of human history that we've understood the mind as, you know, this sort of combination of chemical and electrical forces that we can kind of really understand you know, and and I'm no neurologist, so I'm probably butchering any sort of uh, of uh, explanation. But really, understanding kind of the machinery of the mind and the and the biology of the mind, uh, in addition, because kind of the idea of psychology of understanding how we think and behave has been around for a while. But mm -hmm. kind of combining it with the physicality of the actual instrument of the mind is so interesting. And what I love about the podcast is it 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 really kind of hones in on people's ability to change and what happens when someone is faced with sort of uh, a, a situation, whether it's like your situation where they're kind of forced to make a change or it's, you know, the result of different kind of situational um, uh, uh, activities. Like, you know, I listened to a really interesting episode with, uh, you know, the, the young woman who had left the Westboro Baptist Church after that was more of an evolution of change. It wasn't something like an injury or, or something that kind of forced change. It was through dialogue and through listening and through understanding new ideas. So when you're, when you're talking about people who are making changes, what is it about sort of the cognitive science, understanding the mechanism of the mind, but also understanding kind of the factors that lead to behavioral changes? Like where do those two things meet and how does the physical mind adapt to changes in behavior and ideas? Yeah. Well, it's a great question, and, and you're totally spot on. I mean, I think in large part, my inspiration for creating a slight change of plans, uh, you know, emerged from my personal experience navigating change and a fundamental curiosity about how it is that people navigate change, but also um, an appreciation that while I study change for a living, not all the answers lie in a scientific textbook, mm. right? It, it's not like when you're in the throes of a big change, you can open up a textbook on, you know, page 90 and figure out what the answers are. So, I was hoping with this podcast to marry 
our under, our current understanding of the mind and try to glean insights from the scientific literature, but then also glean insights from people's stories, mm-hmm. right? The, the narratives they told themselves about their lives so that by marrying those two, we can both, you know, allow these two spaces to, to complement one another, but also realize, well, what are the unasked questions in science mm-hmm. or what are the right questions we should even be asking about science in the first place? Um, I think some universal themes have popped out across this full season. I mean, as you mentioned, the stories are as diverse as they come, right? I talked to a black jazz musician who convinced hundreds of people to leave the Ku Klux Klan. I talked to Hillary Clinton about changing her last name, talked to Tiffany Haddish about navigating the foster care system and realizing she had a talent for making people laugh. Um, But I think the one thing I found time and time again is that people seem to naturally be storytellers, born storytellers. And what I mean by that is we like painting narratives that make sense of our lives, that make the narratives in our lives feel cohesive so that things don't really feel random or arbitrary or Mm. accidental. And whatever your spiritual or non-spiritual beliefs are, I think one thing that's certainly true is that we do try to find meaning in change. We do try to find um, purpose and potential growth in change. And so what's been startling to me is to see across the full season that whether a change was willed or unwilled, expected, unexpected, catastrophic, life-affirming, people by and large had been happy that they went through the change because they grew in some way or learned something new about themselves or surprised themselves in some way around how it is that they engaged with the change. And that's particularly surprising to me as a cognitive scientist because I know that we're all, you know, we do have biases within our own psychology that lead us to prefer the status quo in a lot of cases, right? We like business as usual. We don't like disrupting the status quo. When we introduce really profound changes in our lives, it can threaten our sense of self and identity and lead to a lot of cognitive dissonance because it might lead us to have to challenge our our ideas or beliefs about the world. And so it can be an unpleasant process. Um, But it's been really reassuring for me on a personal level. I happen to be very averse to change, Jesse. I feel like <laughs> I created this, pro- this uh, podcast in part to help myself uh, navigate change better. Um, but I do think that it's been wonderful to see that even though, you know, one of my guests said, you won't necessarily get what you want out of a change, even a will change. Uh, it'll surprise you in many ways, but you will grow in some way and you will understand yourself better in some way. Um, and I have found that to be a very refreshing take on change. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I, I love the show because it is this great marriage of, you know, science and, you know, obviously you have a very deep understanding of, of, of how the brain works and, and behavioral sciences, but it's also, like you said, great storytelling. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I was a journalism major in, in college. I was terrible at like math. I was so, I've told this to other people. I've been so, I was so terrible at like traditional math and science that I had for well, the one credit I needed in that field. I took a course called math and society, not math in society. They just threw the society <laughs> on just to make sure we, we had, <laughs> we could fill a curriculum, but the storytelling really drives home some really big ideas and really interesting ideas. And that's why mm-hmm. I'm excited about the topic we're talking about today, because, uh, you know, we live, I feel like in this kind of golden age of storytelling with podcasting with some prestige with what we see on prestige tv but also movies and today we're going to be talking about movies that represent navigating change now you've brought three selections and i'll follow up with three of my own we'll kind of go uh uh back and forth it'll be really fun so let's go ahead and jump into the list tell me your first movie that you feel like is a great representation of navigating change yes okay so 
My first one is actually inspired by my podcast. Um, it is called The Dawn Wall. Okay. And it is a movie about Tommy Caldwell. He is a professional rock climber. Okay. And he went through some harrowing experiences. Actually, sorry, I should not just say he's a professional rock climber. He's considered one of the greatest big wall climbers in the world. Yeah. Okay, this guy is a total badass. Okay. And he's gone through some pretty harrowing experiences in his life, including... Um, being held captive in Kyrgyzstan for six wow. days um, on the verge of death, starvation, hypothermia, and then potentially the threat of being killed by his captors. Um, and then also accidentally cut off a finger in his index finger during a wood shopping accident oh, um, in his home. And after cutting off his index finger, he went on to become the greatest big wall climber in the world. Wow. And so his story to me um, one is a testament to how humans can thrive in the face of adversity. Yeah. Um, but the reason that I love the movie, The Don Wall, and I loved my interview with Tommy is that he really surprised me in terms of what it was that ultimately motivated him to, and, and where the drive emerged from when it came to, uh, taking on climbing in the face of this adversity. So going into my interview, I thought the impetus for um, his domination in the space came from the fact that when he was in Kyrgyzstan, he found the courage to push his captor off a cliff. And it led to a lot of anxiety in him. Mm. You know, he had never yeah. wanted to harm someone else, um, but, you know, obviously wanted to save his life and his climbing buddies' lives. But it also proved to him that in these really big moments, um, he could step up to the plate and do things beyond his what he believed was his potential. Mm. And um, I was taken by this in particular because Tommy also said that, you know, he had always thought of himself as like kind of a weak person, like he's a great yeah. climber, but he never really knew what he was fully capable of. And in that moment, you know, it was clear. But what actually motivated him, and this is why, again, I love these interviews on A Slight Change of Plans because they always change my perspective on what it is that's a true motivator for someone. He told me that, it was actually this rare mental state that he experienced when he was in Kyrgyzstan that has mm. been the force behind his motivation ever since. He said that when he was in the throes of this horrible state of captivity where he was experiencing hypothermia and starvation and what have you, he had an unprecedented level of mental clarity at times mm. that he had never experienced before as a person. So he calls this a flow state, yeah. a state where he had profound clarity about the world around him. He knew exactly what he, what he needed to do in order to survive. Um, and he's actually been chasing that mental state ever since mm. as a climber. In fact, he's been doing these intensely long endurance climbs where he's climbing for 50 hours wow. without sleeping and eating in order to try to approximate that flow state. And it's driven him, you know, ever since. And he ended up scaling the Dawn Wall, which was deemed impossible by basically everyone in the climbing community yeah. with nine fingers wow. um, as a result of this desire. And he said he experienced it one time, this flow state, and it was during that climb. And so what I love about that change story is that the, the lesson that he learned from that experience in Kyrgyzstan was so different, again, from yeah. what I had thought. And it was such a refreshing take on change because I never thought about, you know, coding different mental states and the fact that that can actually be a thing that propels us forward in life. 
That that is so interesting. You know, we I I help. I'm developing a new podcast with, with a mental performance coach who works with a lot of athletes, and he tries to get them to be able to kind of turn on and off this sort of level of focus and intensity uh, through kind of mental performance exercises, visualizations, and things mm-hmm. like that. And uh, you know, it, it this story is so interesting because that flow state seemed to be triggered. Do you think it was triggered by the intensity of the situation, the stakes of the situation, by the combination of like adrenaline, this flow state that he was able to achieve? What do you think it was that not only you know this this very intense situation where he's been held captive and 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 is experiencing a lot of physical distress mm. and the uh, you know, being doing something that is seemingly impossible, where the stakes are very high on this climb. What is it about those two scenarios that allowed him to? Do you think to achieve that 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 certain flow state, as he calls it? It's a great question. I mean, I just have to venture a guess, which is that it was a combination of those factors. I mean, the the remarkable thing about flow is that it is this ineffable ineffable state, mm. right? You can't recruit it on demand. You can't yeah. just will it to happen. And I know this because I flirted with flow states as a violinist. And I remember there's a few moments where I had that intense state of flow where like the world around you disappears. Yeah. You kind of lose yourself in the moment. It feels like nothing else exists. But then the minute you think too hard about it, it's yeah. gone. Yeah. Um, and so I think for Tommy it almost came at him before he realized that it was happening. Mm. And then he was intoxicated by this state and then thought, wow, that's like the ideal mental state. Like I want to at least get to experience that once more in my lifetime. Um, And so again, I can only wager a guess based on my own personal experience, but I do know that it is one of those inevitable things that's really hard to unpack. You're not sure in any given moment what led to it, Mm -hmm. but these, it does require you know, the, all these particular stars to align yeah. in order, I think, to create um, that psychological experience. I'm, I'm a big basketball fan. And I think part of what I love about watching someone like a Steph Curry, where yeah. it just seems like he can't miss. He is in, it, you know, you've seen, <laughs> totally. and, and you see it with a lot of athletes where, you you know, Tiger Woods is another example. The, the really great athletes where it's like, they are in a different state of mind that they might break out of, but it is really fun to watch almost like human potential through the lens of, of, of a flow state, especially someone who's a master of their craft, whether a musician or an athlete or, or some sort of artist. It is so interesting that people are trying to unlock that to kind of figure out what is that factor. That is really interesting. I'm really interested in seeing the film, too. Yeah, I mean, the Don Wall is amazing. And again, I, I, I felt like when I interviewed him, I learned even more things, at, you know, than I learned in the movie, which was always a fun experience. And I will end by saying that, you know, the reason why I love this theme when it comes to change specifically is that, you know, for Tommy, um, I think his sense of self-identity after this experience in Kyrgyzstan was more tied to a desire to achieve this mental state than it was even to climbing. Mm. And that really resonated with me on a per- on a personal level yeah. because I saw the dangers of attaching my identity too closely to the violin because yeah. in a moment it was gone. I lost it. And what I realized from that experience is that sometimes it can be more valuable to attach your identity to the traits of a pursuit that mm. really light you up. Yeah. And so when I think back to my violin days, Sure, I love the instrument. I love the sound that it produced. I love the feeling of the the fingerboard and the wood and whatnot. Um, but what actually made me fall in love with the violin was the ability to forge a really strong emotional connection mm. with people I'd never met before. Yeah. So, you know, I go on stage. There's thousands of people in the audience that I've never met before in my life. 
Um, and then within moments, we have connected in this really deep, profound, intimate way through the notes that I'm producing. Yeah. And so that's actually been the, the, the drive for me when it's come to finding new pursuits, right? Mm. I mean, it led me to study the human experience in the first place, right? Like my fascination with humans and what gets them to feel things, like yeah. what gets us to feel emotions that we didn't feel before just because of these vibrating waves in the air. Um, and then even with my podcast, a slight change of plans, um, so much of my love of that, of this experience is getting to forge these emotional connections with people very quickly. You know, yeah. I have license now to go into a room in my closet during coronavirus um, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and say to people, you know, talk to Hillary Clinton and say, Hey, Hillary, I know we just met, but would you mind letting me know what the hardest <laughs> moment of your life was yeah. or, you know, what your greatest insecurities are? Yeah. And I think when you identify traits of passions, right? So for Tommy, he realized that he could get the flow state through climbing, but you can get the flow state through other things too, yeah. you know? Um, it allows us to navigate life's twists and turns without feeling too latched, you know, too wedded to a very specific narrow domain. Yeah. Um, and instead, you know, the broad array of things life can offer us. Yeah, well, that's so interesting. And okay, so on that point of like the idea of uh, of of re how relationships kind of factor in to the, you know these different states and kind of just everyone knows the harmony of hanging out with like their best bud. And yeah, yeah you know what I mean. Like it's that's almost like relational flow state. Or if you see like two like improv comedians who are just like, dude, they just let them just let them rip for a little bit. Like yeah, that's yeah. it. So my my next my selection is a little is is very different. But I'm interested in your thoughts on it. I chose sure. the movie Bridesmaids because uh, I love the, that. <laughs> the core of that film is about a friendship going through change mm. because of a lot of factors. You know, uh, the most obvious one friend is getting married. One is staying single. You know, the, the idea of kind of jumping sort of social classes is also a theme of that film as well, sort of income levels and how that can change relational dynamics. Um, and I don't feel like it's a spoiler for any a bridesmaid has been out for, I think it's like 10 year old movie, <laughs> which is, I think you're good. Yeah. But you know, at the end of the movie, they kind of realize that their relationship can stay intact, though it may look differently, uh, mm. uh, moving, moving forward. It, ironically, it ends with them performing a song together at a wedding, but, uh, you know, I, what do you, how do, when you, when you talk to people who've had profound relationship changes, mm. you know, that, and whether those changes are because of proximity, you know, someone goes to college or someone takes a job or someone gets married and they're just kind of life or has a kid. You see that a lot, like, especially for people kind of in their twenties and thirties a lot where all of a sudden one of their best friends has a kid and their, their relationship just changes dramatically. You know, bridesmaids, I feel like really had fun with that idea. And, yeah. um, but when you see a film like that, what, what is your thoughts from a cognitive science standpoint mm -hmm. of what's happening to these characters and what is sort of the analog for the everyday person that is constantly experiencing these relationship changes? Yeah, look, I love that choice because it really does resonate with some of the conversations I've had on a slight change of plans. And I think, Fundamentally, we we can sometimes fail to appreciate how when we inspire change within ourselves or change happens to us, we can never control the way that people will respond to that change, mm. right? So change doesn't happen in this vacuum where yeah. it's like, oh, I changed this big thing about myself and I'm still my and all my friends are going to interact with me exactly the same way as before and I'm going to be the same person. There's all these interconnected effects that can happen. And so it's reminding me of the fact that, you know, I recently talked with uh, from for a slight change, uh, a colleague of my husband's, a friend of my husband's, who is a researcher who builds cancer detection tools. He's 33 years old, and he's also a self-proclaimed health nut. So 
um, everything that you can find in a book, Jesse, he's done. Yeah. He's done intermittent fasting, high intensity interval training. He's vegan. He adds turmeric and chia seeds to his food. <laughs> he is firmly committed to his health. Yeah. And during 2020, um, his worst nightmare comes true, which is he gets a stage four bone cancer mm. diagnosis. Mm. Within weeks, he has to get his right leg amputated. He has to pack his bags, move to Texas, MD Anderson, to get multiple rounds of chemotherapy and two additional significant surgeries. He mm. had to get a vertebra from his spine removed, oh, um, a surgery involving his his tibia. Um, and so Scott's worst nightmare has ha- happened. And oh, it's painful even to talk about because yeah. again, I know him, He, you know, he's a friend. Yeah. Um, but one of the conversations that we had during the course of the interview was, you know, you can you can manage the change internally and try to figure out coping mechanisms and strategies and psychologies that you can use to manage this profound change in your life. But how did it affect your friendships, right? How did it affect your, you know, just got married like two weeks before um, he, or like, no, actually, yeah, maybe a week before the surgery. How how did this affect your life and and this social ecosystem that you had been um, surrounding yourself with? And he said, you know, it's so interesting. Like my best friend's biggest decision on any given day is like which blue apron item to order yeah. and like to cook at night. And here I am thinking, should I do the surgery before round four yeah. chemo or after round four chemo? And he's like, I can totally understand why that would prevent people from wanting to connect with me because now there's, you know, we, we were, we had so much commonality before this experience. And now this serious life event happened in which we are operating in two different spheres. But he, Scott, said that I like the normalcy of talking about the Blue Apron choice. Yeah. And I love it when people bitch to me about stuff. Like, he's like, maybe yeah. that's just my personality, but I love it when people complain to me about things. And so I've encouraged my friends to keep it real with me about yeah. what their problem space is. And what he learned from his experience is that your problems are your problems at the end of the day. Like, he feels, this is the fr- phrase he used, that the emotional thermostat prevailed mm. that there's a ceiling on just how bad he can feel. Yeah. Um, and whether that's because of a challenge you're having with a family member or the challenges of being in cancer for him anyway, um, there's a ceiling. And so what it's taught him again is like your problems are your problems. And he doesn't feel, he doesn't feel like he wants the people in his life to change yeah. um, as a result of that. And I do know that the research corroborates this. There's a lot of studies showing that when people have really bad things happen to them, they return faster to their happiness set point than they would expect. And when really good things happen to them, they very quickly return to their happy old happiness set yeah. points. And so it does seem like we do have some range. Every individual person has some range that they kind of, you know, oscillate, you know. Um, but yeah, I just thought that was so interesting, this question of how it is that people respond to us in the face of change. And yeah how we can try to, you know, moderate that in yeah, some way. That is so interesting. At the end of the day, people want to relate to other people as people and not necessarily as someone who's in this situation or that situation. There's something comforting about being related to as just on a hu- very human level. And, yeah. you know, uh, well, very cool. All right. What is number two on, on your list? Okay. <laughs> uh, sorry. I also get so excited about this podcast that I feel like I talk forever. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I'm, I'm such a big I fan of so the show. I'm so passionate about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So my next one is Back to the Future. 
Nice. Classic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, basically yeah. on everyone's top movie list, yeah. if I may say so myself. But the reason I love Back to the Future is that it teases you with what these counterfactual versions of your life might have looked mm. like. Yeah. Um, had you just made, you know, there's like the butterfly effect, but yeah, it's like sliding doors you know, kind of deal. Yeah. yeah. It's like, did I, if I just made the left turn versus the right turn, yeah. had X event just happened after Y event, how would my life have been different or not different? Right. Um, and I'm always kind of asking these questions to myself, which is like, oh, if I just done this versus that, would I have been really different or would my general psychology have kicked in and I would more or less still be the same person? And yeah. I just love that thought experiment when it comes to change, because I think when we try to imagine our futures, we well, we know from research, we do a really bad job with cognitive forecasting. We're very bad at predicting mm. how events will impact us. Um, but I just love, yeah, I just love the thought experiment and sometimes proving myself wrong. I mean, if you told me at 15, we're going to take the violin away from you and you're going to be forced to jump into the deep end and figure out something else. I've been like, that's the worst thing. Of course, privileged 15 year old talking about it being the worst thing. It was not the worst thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know what I mean? And then somehow I have found that in many ways it was a wonderful thing because of all the avenues that I've explored as a result. And so yeah, I love I love the thought experiment. I, oh man, I'm so glad you picked that. I actually just wrapped up, and I'm not typically like a big superhero movie person, but I, I got into the the series Loki, which is mm. a, 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 you know it's just wrapped up on Disney Plus, but a similar idea where uh, the main character in the show um, ends up traveling back in time and splitting timelines, but ends up creating variants of himself that live different mm. existences love that he it. ends up kind of teaming up with. Um, but what they find, what he finds is, you know, the show really wrestles with the idea is, are you who you are, no matter what you've experienced? Like mm -hmm. what, you know, the kind of the idea of nature versus nurture, where am I hardwired to behave and, and my identity to be, even if I experience different circumstances, is that what makes me who I am or is who I am really hardwired into just, you know, my neurology and, and, and my psychology from mm -hmm. from your study because and because both are sort of asking the same question is yeah, totally. if faced with a different set of circumstances would i be a different person you know from from a science standpoint what's your take on that is like if you know if if there's an alternate version of maya who like yeah never hurt her hand right you know how much different of a person do you think you would be from like a, that scientific standpoint Look, Jesse, if I had the answer to that question, I feel like I could rule the world. I totally don't. The science doesn't know. Yeah. It's so context-specific and depends on so many like genetic factors around personality traits. I think that is one of the big unknowns. And maybe that's why I enjoy the thought experiment so yeah. much, because there are no clear answers. And um, I'm so uncertain about how different types of changes would have affected me. Yeah. Yeah, it, but that's part of what makes a film like Back to the Future so much fun is I because <laughs> it takes that thought experiment and and puts it in a, a great narrative form. And it's just, I mean, look, it's a blast to watch Back yeah, to the Future. It's, it's amazing. One of my absolutely one of my favorites. Yeah. And, and I love kind of the the sci-fi idea of, you know, if if there was another version of you, like what is those determining factors? And it's so cool that scientists science is actually trying to figure it out while artists are wrestling with it like through narrative and through film. Mm -hmm. and stories you know science is really digging into how that works which is so cool to me um yeah so okay so the next one on my list this one is a little bit of an obscure pick it was a movie that will ferrell did years ago and it's called everything must go and it's about a guy it takes place over the course of just three days it's about a guy whose alcoholism ultimately cost him his job and his marriage in the same week 
And, you know, he, over the course of this three days, he has this yard sale because he get his, his, his now kind of ex-wife has locked him out and is forcing him to sell everything. And through the help of some concerned neighbors, really kind of comes to terms with his addictive behaviors and decides mm. to make changes. Now, obviously, that's a very accelerated timeline. I think people who have studied addiction, you know, would, would know that sometimes it's okay if that 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 process is drawn out. But what I really liked about it was that empathy seemed to be the catalyst for behavioral change. And, mm. you know, from your perspective, when you look at someone, whether it's someone struggling with, you know, in maybe an extreme case, like an addiction or someone that is in maybe a behavior pattern that they want to change, how often do you find it that that sort of just human empathy is the catalyst for making those changes? Or are, are there other factors that seem to be more effective? I, I mean, I am 100% in the empathy camp. Mm. Um, I will say that having studied cognitive science for this long, I can't help but feel empathy for basically every human experience. And the reason for that is when you understand the mind and you understand its trappings um, and, and all the flaws and biases that we share as humans, it does give you a profound sense of empathy for the way in which everyone else goes through their lives mm. um, and a lot of compassion. And so I, I have felt that... Um, this perspective that I have in studying the mind has probably made me a better person, you yeah. know, much more empathetic of other people's challenges and struggles. And I also believe it can help breed self-compassion um, mm. as you understand your own biases and flaws. Um, separately, one of the things that your, your movie choice reminds me of is a conversation that I had with Casey Musgraves mm. about She's a country yeah. music singer. I love uh, Casey singer. Musgraves. I yeah. love Casey too. Yeah. Um, and she used psychedelics to... Um, inform her creative process and her sense of self. She did a, you know, Johns Hopkins guided psychedelic trip. Yeah. And one of the things that research studies have shown psychedelics can aid are things like addiction. Mm. And the reason for that is in many ways, they are freeing you of old mental patterns and behaviors that we've set in stone over time, right? You can imagine, you know, nice metaphor is like every day you're traversing through the forest and you're laying down these paths, you know, these tracks and you're stepping over the same tracks every single day, right? That's a neural connection that you can reinforce over the years. Yeah. And what psychedelics does um, in, in people's trips or can do in people's trips is quiet what's called the default mode network. And the default mode network, you can think of as like being your mind's conductor. It's orchestrating mm. everything. And in practice, what that means is it's controlling a lot of these and it's reinforcing a lot of these patterns of behaviors and ways of thinking about the world. And what psychedelics seems to do, um, as I mentioned, is quiet it, which gives yeah. your mind a chance to essentially see the world through a child's mindset, which mm. is not anchored through old existing expectations about the world or beliefs about the world or attitudes about the world or ourselves. And it like gives you that blank slate with which to see the world. And they found that it can help a cancer patient, you know, come to terms with, with their death. Uh, it can help people with profound addiction overcome that addiction. Uh, it can have incredible therapeutic effects. Yeah. Um, and so I do think sometimes um, when we think about change, right, we are, uh, from what I've been told about people who've had psychedelic trips, I've never done them myself, that can build a lot of self-compassion and empathy. Like Casey Musgraves talks about how it gave her a kind of compassion for her former self, her childhood self that she had mm. never felt before. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I just love 
um, again, learning about these very colorful, diverse stories. It'll be the season finale. Oh, uh, I can't of wait. Might change season one. So I'm excited. I for can't wait. It, it's funny. This is, I think this is the third interview I've done where, where uh, like therapeutic psychedelics have come up. And, mm-hmm. you know, what's so interesting is like, unlike a lot of our traditional understanding of, again, I'm not, I'm not a neurologist or, you know, pharmacist or anything, but like, it seems like a lot of our traditional understanding of some sort of chemical or pharmacological treatment for different, you know, whether it's depression or, or mental health or, or addiction was really kind of centered on things like, you know, regular dopamine, uh, you mm-hmm. know, you know, kind of our ability, our serotonin receptors and things like that, where it does seem like the interesting thing about psychedelics is the research seems to show that a couple experiences really kind of help you kind of rewire and almost get a clean slate you know, whether that's someone struggling with different mental health things or trauma, you know, I've read, Mm -hmm. you know, that's just had really profound changes for people that are struggling with like PTSD. And so that's so cool that that is a field that people are becoming, it's becoming more acceptable to, to discuss much less, uh, you know, kind of understand from a neurological and kind of just social, uh, uh, perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And it can also lead to sustained, um, and significant changes in certain personality traits that don't, normally uh, increase in one's adult life. So openness, which is highly associated with creativity, like aesthetic appreciation, um, curiosity, imagination, what have you, that actually on average tends to decrease as we age. And yet there's these controlled studies in the psychedelic space that show a sustained and significant increase in openness um, as a result of one discrete psychedelic trip. Um, which shows the power um, that it can have when when used in appropriate context and yeah. for the right people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the appropriate context, I think, is, yeah. is key there. You know? <laughs> totally. All right, so tell you what, my I'll do my my next one first, so that way you have the last one. Uh, that sounds uh, so, great. so I want you to I want you to end on a high note. So my, okay. the next one I chose <laughs> was the film The Big Sick, which stars Kumail Nanjiani as mm-hmm. a, uh, a you know he's at, a, in the movie he's a Uber driver who's a, you know struggling kind of stand up comedian, uh, but the movie deals with a lot of interesting themes because he's Pakistani American and has certain expect cultural expectations from his parents. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he meets a woman who he falls in love with. And as the title for anyone who hasn't seen the movie, as the title implies, um, she becomes uh, chronically ill and he kind of stays by her side. Uh, but at the same time, he's struggling with, um, you know, the expectations of his parents that he'll, you know, be involved in this arranged marriage or his professional expectations have dramatically changed. And mm-hmm. it also kind of has parallel storylines where everyone is kind of dealing with different levels of changes and expectations of what their life is versus what different people thought it was going to be. Mm. Now, you know, obviously, and I, I, I see a parallel in your story with like the violin where you had a certain expectation to a certain point in your life and those expect- expectations changed dramatically. When you see people realizing that what they had expected for their lives or what maybe their families had expected for them is not going to be the reality How do you see, you know, obviously that's a fun movie that really wrestles with navigating these changes, but how do you see that play out in real life when people have certain expectations that that's not going to be maybe how their stories ends? Yeah. I mean, I love your movie choices because they're all getting me thinking of that different (laughs) conversations that I've had. This is so much fun. Um, So this reminds me of a conversation I had with a young woman named Elma Baker for a slight change of plans. Um, She, her dream in life was to become thin. Uh, she believed that if she could just become thin, every door would open for her. She'd be living her dream um, and that would solve her problems. And she ended up losing close to 100 pounds in five and a half months. Oh. And for a while, she did think that she was living her dream life. Yeah. 
until she realized that change doesn't happen in a vacuum. Mm. So she had falsely believed that becoming sane would be like stepping through one of those magical mirrors yeah. where Elna's exactly the same. She's just now thin Elna. Yeah. But what happened is that she felt like her personality got a lot worse. She lost a lot of her boldness and irreverence. Interestingly, she became more self-conscious. Mm. She felt like she was a worse person. She felt like her values were shifting and that she wasn't standing up for things that she believed in. Um, and she was finding that the way that people were treating her felt so unfair yeah. that, you know, quote, that she has this device she uses where she talks about old Elna and new Elna. And that old Elna was a much better person and yet wasn't being treated as well by society. And it was really disillusioning for her. And she, um, she just, she left the whole experience being a lot less happy than she was before. Yeah. And what I love about this story is that it taught me that I would now give the same advice to someone, whether or not they were going through a willed or an unwilled change. And that is to approach change with a profound amount of humility, mm. because we simply can't predict all of the ways a very discrete change in our life will spill over into other parts of our lives, yeah. right? There is this very sophisticated ecosystem, you know, that exists in our minds and in our environments. And a change that we think will be net positive can absolutely turn out net negative. Um, or in the case of Scott, you know, the cancer patient, yeah. he felt that he was just as happy as he was before and actually grew and became a better person, wow. right? So that's the flip side of it. And so I love stories in which there's a violation of expectation mm. because it teaches us that we need to kind of audit ourselves through our change experiences. We can't take much for granted. Um, and we need to remember that when we predict how something's going to affect us, when we predict how we will feel, we are basing that only on the limited set of data points we've collected about ourselves up until that moment of time. And sometimes it takes a profound change to unlock other parts of ourselves that we haven't acquainted ourselves with up until that point. Yeah. Um, and so we have to appreciate that there might be other dimensions of who we are that will kick in to gear uh, when these big change moments happen. That's so cool. I love that idea. Approaching it with profound humility. Like that, is, I, that's probably a good rule, not just for expectations, but for, for a lot of things <laughs> in, in general, life. In yeah. life, totally. All right, Maya, drum roll number one okay. movie that, that about navigating change. I'm really excited here. <laughs> oh, I didn't realize these were ordered, but sure. I'm going to make this one my number one. Uh, the Truman Show. Yes. Uh, the reason choice. I love The Truman Show is because um, Truman suddenly finds himself in a moment where his entire understanding of the world and how he relates to it and who he is, is challenged. Mm. Um, when he realizes that he's living essentially in this alternate reality, right? Yeah. Every character around him is the fiction. And I love the journey in which he discovers that to be true. But I also love um, that the movie leaves unresolved what happens to him yeah. after he departs this fiction, right? There's this tension within himself, which is, okay, I've been living in this fiction, but been a really lovely fiction by and large. I mean, I'm fully protected and cared for. And um, I don't know whether I want to venture out into the unknown. Yeah. But he takes that leap. And we as the audience are left wondering what's going to happen in this new reality. Yeah, I, I love that movie because it reminds me of your conversation. I believe it was Megan Phelps Roper. Was that her mm -hmm. uh, who left Westboro yeah, Baptist Church Westboro, where her had her whole, rea you know, she lived in a sort of own Truman reality of, I mean, hers was okay. toxic and terrible, you know, involved in this kind of you know, hate cult. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, from five years old was just subject to indoctrination and her whole worldview ended up kind of collapsing in on itself when contradictions in her belief system were exposed through, you know, generous conversations with with strangers. But that conversation remind it does have that Truman Show kind of parallel where you realize, oh my gosh, there is this world outside of what I was taught. And seeing someone go through that change is so interesting. 
And, you know, obviously we don't know what happens to Truman Afro, but we know what happened to Megan, where, you know, she has this kind of new life and new perspective. Tell me before before we close out, Maya, tell me what that conversation was like. Yeah, it was fascinating. I mean, like you said, she had been steeped in this incredibly hateful ideology for her entire childhood. Her grandfather had founded the church. Uh, they were raised to believe that basically everyone who didn't believe in the church was going to hell um, and worthy of God's wrath. Yeah. And uh, they would do atrociously terrible things like protest the funerals of military uh, m- members of the military who were gay yeah. uh, and other just vile yeah. things. Yeah. And like you said, through a series of conversations she had with people who are willing to be empathetic and compassionate, they opened her eyes up to the fact that this ideology was just completely wrong, uh, which is the truth that she hadn't been willing to even acknowledge or confront. She she hadn't even been willing to acknowledge that that could be the case, yeah. basically for her entire life up until this point. And at 27, it just kind of hit her like, oh my gosh, everything that I've ever believed to be true is wrong. Yeah, And I asked her actually a question very similar to the the Truman Show question, which was that next morning you're waking up and everything you've ever believed is gone. Nothing is true anymore. And you need to cultivate all of your new beliefs about the world from scratch, right? You have a blank canvas in front of you. What is that like? Yeah. Um, And she talks about the fact that, of course, it's daunting and scary. She felt like she, you know, was again in this completely new reality. Um, But now looking back, I mean, she feels profound gratitude for Mm. the fact that she can now carry an open mind and live her life guided by her own conscience, which is something that she felt she had to suppress for so long. And that that openness has ignited a curiosity in her um, about how it is that all people live in this world, you know? Um, And that was such a heartwarming message to leave the interview on, which is um, she now feels like Every question is an open question. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Every new culture is a new culture to explore. And yeah, I just love that. Yeah. Well, uh, for listeners that want to hear more incredible conversations like this and to learn about change and people's capacity to change, which is a message that I feel like the world needs right now is that people are capable of, of change and, and becoming better people. It's such a great, encouraging, interesting show. A slight change of plan to get wherever you get your podcast. Maya, thanks for coming on List It. Thank you so much for having me, Jesse. It was so much fun to talk about a slight change of plans. Um, and I think one thing I love about this show is that the, and I hope you feel this way too, the conversations feel very timeless. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like they're relevant now. Hopefully they're relevant in 20 years. Yeah. Uh, it's what, if, you're, if your listeners want to binge on change, it's one of those things that's great for a car, car trip. Yeah, <laughs> I, trip I agree. Somewhere. I agree. Everyone check it out. It's a great, great show. Maya, thanks again. Thanks so much for having me. All right, everyone, that is it for this episode of List It on the Ironclad Content Network. Hey, if you like the show, I know every podcast has to do it, but it really does help. If you like the show, leave a rating and review. I really appreciate it. All right, guys, we'll see you next time.